you see Mr. Steele last night? Yes, as I came home, I saw him going to his apartment with a girl. That girl was murdered between one and two o'clock this morning. First, you have to have enough imagination to visualize the crime. You're driving up the canyon. You put your right arm around her neck. You get to a lonely place in the road, and you begin to squeeze. You're an ex-GI. You know judo. You know how to kill a person. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. And this week we have a very special guest to help us with our road to 100 episodes. He is the czar of noir. He's the sharp-dressed man of TCM. It's Mr. Eddie Muller. Eddie, how are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you for inviting me to be on the show. It's fun talking to all three of you at once. We've done it all individually, (laughs) but all at once is terrific. I came up with that special intro in the middle of the night last night. I decided (laughs) I needed to have something that sounded really cool and professional because Eddie is really cool and professional when you meet him, which I hope everybody gets the opportunity to one day. Eddie, for people who don't know who you are, which is upsetting to me to even contemplate, but I'm sure they exist. The vast majority of the world. Don't don't (laughs) worry about it. (laughs) Can you give us a little background on your work with TCM and your writing and your history with noir? Wow. Okay. The highlights. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. The highlights. We don't want to kill the entire hour here. I've been working with TCM for, I've kind of lost track, a number of years now. The big event was when they had me do the Summer of Darkness. I think that was back in 2015. I did the Summer of Darkness with them. We had crossed paths, TCM and I, several times before that. I had written my first book on film noir, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, back in 1998. And then a follow-up called Dark City Dames that TCM, I think it was in 2002, I think, 2001 or 2002 that that book came out. And they used it as the basis for their first festival of film noir. That was the original Summer of Darkness. And they had all of the actresses that I profiled in that book in a roundtable on air that they used as the interstitial stuff for that festival. And I, I always, it amuses me to tell the story considering how things have worked out. It was very amusing that at the time, they would not have me be the host of those actresses because I was nobody, right? And so it's like, this guy just wrote the book, but we want to get the actresses. But the actresses, you know, and that was uh, Marie Windsor and Audrey Totter and Jane Greer and Colleen Gray. And they really wanted to do it with me because by that time we had become pretty good friends and, and confidants, shall we say. But TCM at that point was like, no, we need a somebody, a star to do the uh, interview with the actresses. And it's very interesting to, I, I learned this later on, it's interesting to note that the first person they approached to do that was Alec Baldwin. And now we know that he's like a TCM favorite and everybody knows that Alec Baldwin is a huge classic movie fan, but scheduling didn't work out and he couldn't do it. So they got uh, Scott Glenn, 
you know, tough guy actor Scott Glenn from The Right Stuff and Urban Cowboy. But honestly, Scott didn't know much about, about this stuff. So TCM paid me to write Scott Glenn's questions, even though I couldn't appear on camera with the actresses. So that was my first interaction with TCM. And I, I only bring that up as an amusing little tidbit now that things have worked out to where I have my own show on the network. Well, when I invited you on to do this episode, I had asked you what movie you wanted to talk about. And I didn't have a whole lot of caveats other than something that either you loved and wanted to talk about or that wasn't well known. And you immediately said that the one we're talking about today hits on all points. It's 1950s in a lonely place. What does this film mean to you? I will get to that in one moment. I want sure. you to realize I will I want you to realize something very serendipitous, Kristen, and that is that, you know, the day that we are recording this and I hope it's okay for mm-hmm. me to say this, that oh, this yeah. podcast is not live. The day we are recording this is the 70th anniversary of the day that In a Lonely Place was released. It is. I it is. I realized that this morning as I was watching it and I was it was like a sign from the heavens. I was like, yeah. okay, we picked a good one. <laughs> yeah, how cool How cool is that? And obviously I had no idea that that was going to be the case because I picked the movie not knowing when we were going to record this podcast. But I love the movie be- for several reasons. Number one, you you learn at a certain point when it became apparent that this whole noir gig was going to be like a thing for me. I learned very quickly, you have to have a favorite film because everybody's going to ask you that. So it doesn't matter that that even if it wasn't my favorite film, you still have to pick a favorite film. Uh, But In a Lonely Place does it for me because it's a film that I revisit regularly. I watch it at least once a year. And it's very special to me because the film develops with me. It It has so much complexity and it has so much depth in what it says about so many things. We can talk about what the film is actually about, the many things the film is about. But I remember seeing it the first time when I was 17 years old at the Castro Theater in San Francisco and being mesmerized by the film, but getting this sense that there's something happening in this movie that I don't understand because I'm not mature enough yet to really grasp what the movie is about. And I find that that still applies to this. I was 17 then. I am 61 years old as I speak to you today. And I'm still finding stuff in that movie that resonates and speaks to the person that I am now. And I can look at the film and say, oh, I used to think this about this aspect of the film. But now I've lived a little bit and I see something else in the film. And I find that is very, very rare in movies. I love a movie that developed with you. It changes with you, you know? That's part of the reason I really like it. I've, of course, I like it because the protagonist is a writer, so I relate to that. And being a guy who loves noir films, it is completely unnecessary for me to have a likable protagonist in a film. It's just not necessary because I think you learn more about life uh, when you watch people who do the wrong things in movies, then, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't go into movies looking for a role model or looking for a hero or something. I just want to see a story about people who are living through stuff that I can relate to. And if they happen to do the wrong thing, it doesn't disappoint me. 
It's like, that's that story, right? So what does it mean to me? How do I interpret that? So there's just a lot of stuff going on in the film. I, I also really like it because it's so different from the book that it's based on that I learned a lot when I, so I, I probably saw the movie five or six times before I read the book by Dorothy Hughes. And then reading the book, it was like, wow, this is incredible. And it's like a different story. Same premise, just totally different thrust, totally different attack to it and, and totally different motivations for the central character. So I really, uh, as, as somebody who studies film and as a writer himself, I was kind of fascinated with how they made these choices in adapting the film to the screen. Well, and for those who don't know what the plot of In a Lonely Place is, I'll throw it out. You have Humphrey Bogart as the appropriately noirishly named Dixon Steele. They keep calling him Dick Steele, which just, I was like, that's such a cool detective-y name. But he's not a detective. He is. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was such a great name for a porn star. <laughs> <laughs> that too. I'm sure somebody would say that that, that is a true statement. Um, but he's a screenwriter. He's a Hollywood screenwriter who has, they mentioned, at the beginning has not had much success lately. They keep talking about how he's he didn't come back from the war the same. He hasn't had a success or been focused enough to have that desire to write since the war began. And he takes home a hat check girl who has read a popular novel so that he can decide whether there is a story to be told. But of course, because it's a noir, that sweet hat check girl ends up dead and he is the prime suspect at the same time his neighbor laurel gray played by gloria graham falls for him and as the two become more entwined there is this question of maybe he really is a murderer eddie you mentioned that this is very different from the book what is can you give us a little rundown of of what the the key elements that they changed for this are um, okay, but this is a major spoiler alert. <laughs> well, uh, spoilers are fine. I, I mean, we'll talk about the end at the end. Um, but yeah, if you want to hit on stuff, I mean, we all we go in with this the knowledge that these movies are already this is seventy years old. Like you can't. Okay. No, and I, I, I appreciate that. And anybody who's going to listen to like a podcast this long about one movie had better already have seen right. the movie. Right? <laughs> um, the main difference, of course, is in the book, Dix is actually a serial killer. He, he, I mean, his post-traumatic stress is the fact that he did come back from the war changed. He killed people in the war, and he like had a taste for it. He was married to a woman in England, uh, and, and the suggestion is very strong that he murdered her, and now he continues to do that. And he is a total fraud as a screenwriter. He is not even really a writer in the book. He is pretending to be a writer. So, mm -hmm. so that is the major change is that they, in the movie, they inject all this ambiguity into the plot. Is he capable of murder becomes more the issue than did he kill this particular woman, this hat check girl. So that's the major change. And when people say, well, you know, there's no real murder in the movie or any, you know, do you really think it's a film noir? In some ways, I find it to be like quintessential noir because it's exploring the idea that anybody can be a murderer. I mean, that's, ba you know, here's the successful Hollywood screenwriter. 
And you never know throughout the course of the movie what he's actually capable of. It's, it's hinted at throughout the whole thing because he has these outbursts of violence and he has a really hot button temper. But I feel that Nicholas Ray, in adapting this to the screen, made a very, very smart decision to be ambiguous about it. And I feel that he was also telling his story and Humphrey Bogart's story. I think the movie is very self-revelatory in terms of the character of both of these men. And honestly, I would go so far as to say in terms of the character of many, many creative men. I mean, I'm going to say men because I, I can attest to that. And that's part of what I love about the movie is that it's also a film about the difficulty of the creative process. Because part of the movie that, and something in it that appeals to me greatly is this notion that he is washed up, that he, his glory days are behind him. And then he meets this young woman and he falls in love and she validates everything that he likes in himself. And he suddenly is rejuvenated and he returns to writing and he's going to be a success. But it presents all of this as being very, very fragile because then she feels this immense pressure of now all of a sudden I'm living my life for his art. And if I try to be myself and my own person, this calamity is going to happen. His, his train is going to run off the rails and, and he'll hold me responsible for that. And I just think that's an incredibly adult theme for a movie to tackle in, in 1950. I don't think you saw too many Hollywood movies about this idea and that looked at relationships between men and women with this degree of complexity. I just wanted to jump in because Samantha and Kristen will remember when we did our Noir Vember episode, this was one of my three choices of you have to watch this if you are passionate about film noir and wanting to take it in. And I think the complexity of it that you're talking about is exactly why it's resonated with me and why it is one of those films that can sustand repeat viewings. And the other thing that you mentioned that I hadn't really identified as something I related to myself, but my viewpoint of these characters, my own perspective of it, definitely shifted over the years. And when I rewatched again for this, even though it's only been a year or two, but what with happened in the last couple of years is, oh, like regardless if he's proven to be the murderer and there's this nice what if the whole time. And, you know, you mentioned there's these just flashes of rage that he shows. Even so, when I look at it now, there's this long history of what passion looks like on screen or in books of, mm -hmm. oh, it needs to be combustible. Oh, like there's a fear element or, oh, there. And when I rewatched it this time, I was like, oh, the only satisfying conclusion for this film is for her to leave him because he is an abusive person who is not seeking to change his life, regardless if he's a killer. So it was very funny when you go in with speaking cinema language and so your eyes are looking for what I'm supposed to be discovering and, oh, what am I getting out of this? I think it also, you have to add age and perspective to that in terms of how you're analyzing the choices he's making and the subservience she starts to 
just immediately jump into when when they start falling in love. And yeah, it's something, it's a fascinating film to take on so much beyond just the story of it. That it's the shape of this relationship and how this man and woman fit into it and how it is both something that blossoms for them and like brings them to life and it is destructive. But I don't think a lot of people, when you think of In a Lonely Place or if you normally think of like, oh, there's a mystery. Oh, I'm following, there's this, possible mystery and possible suspects but to me it is such a relationship like it reminds me more of Wuthering Heights than it does of (laughs) other things but I still it's so firmly entrenched in noir that oh it's doing so much work but the the relationships that you mentioned really that's what fascinates me so much to go off of Drea's contention or comparison to Wuthering Heights I mean I saw I was watching this having seen Suspicion which was a whole decade previous, and the mix of responses people have at the end of Suspicion with the whole lovers realizing, you know, oh, I, you think I've been trying to kill you. Oh, no, I haven't. And then they just laugh and go off into the sunset. Ten years ago, before the war was really in full swing, that seems understandable, you know, and, and there's a lot of other differences. You have Cary Grant in the lead, you have Hitchcock directing, but I think by 1950, after the war, after now what we know is PTSD, that ending wouldn't have worked so well. So it, at least if you look in terms of the relationships between those two different couples. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's interesting, Drea, what you're saying, I couldn't agree more This is the thing I love about movies is that our interpretation of movies changes over time. And I embrace this about watching films, whereas some people that I know, what they like about films is that it's a film, right? It doesn't change. It's the same thing in 1950 that it is in 2020, right? It's the film and they look at it and they pin it down like we're going to analyze this like this static thing. It's not a stage play. It's not reinterpreted every night. It's a film. But the culture changes and we change and our interpretations of the film change. And now you were inching up, I think, towards saying this, but over the last two years, people watch In a Lonely Place and it's now seen as a Me Too movie, right? I mean, that's the story, right? Is, is she has to get away from this abusive guy who doesn't even realize that he's like the ultimate mansplainer and all of this <laughs> stuff, you know? But what I find so fascinating about the movie, because it was made in 1950 when nobody thought twice about that stuff, that they were very, very conscious of it in making this film and saying that creative people are different. They, they have different urges, different things drive them. And there's that wonderful scene in the movie where Frank Lovejoy is explaining to Jeff Donald, you know, who plays his wife, he says, Dix is just an exciting guy. You know, he's always been that way. He's, oh my God, he's great to be around. You know, you never know what's coming next. And Now people look at that as something volatile and potentially deadly, whereas I I believe at the time there there was a lot of truth to that. And another aspect of the film that's interesting to me is that Bogart made this film, and when I call it self-revelatory, I mean that in the deepest sense. And I mean, I have said this, I've talked about this film with Stephen Bogart, Humphrey Bogart's son, and Stephen pretty much agrees with this interpretation that, yeah, 
Bogart was playing the man that he now recognized he was in Hollywood. He was angry. He was a needler. He was incredibly sarcastic. But then he met Lauren Bacall and she really smoothed him out. So in real life, that relationship is the Dick's Laurel relationship, but it ends well, right? They get married. She doesn't really sacrifice her career for him. She has her own thing. So in real life, the story plays out just fine, except he dies of throat cancer. So Bogart was very conscious of playing this version of himself, the bad version of Bogart. And I think he was comfortable doing it because he was then in a place where he knew what the opposite was. Like, now I'm good. Now I can reveal this part of my character. Absolutely. I actually read um, that Louise Brooks considered this film to be the closest to the Bogart that she knew. And to be honest, after watching it most recently, that kind of terrified me a little bit. I was like, wait a minute, who is Bogart now? But it's so interesting that you, Andrea, are both discussing the changing opinions as you watch this film multiple times. Number one, I'll just start off by saying all of my favorite films are films that I watch differently every time. Like uh, my man Godfrey, I'll still never fully understand whether he was in love with her or not, you know? So, um, but this one in particular, it's actually funny. I have to give a little bit of background because the first time I watched In a Lonely Place was when you introduced it at the Humphrey Bogart Film Festival in 2015. And yeah, that was my first watch uh, on the big screen, which was pretty lucky. But I remember when I watched it, my whole focus was on whether he was a murderer or not, not the relationship. And that was when I was very young. So now I'm more in Drea's boat where... It, it became a horror movie for me watching it this time. It was it was nothing short of a horror film, no matter whether he's a murderer or not, as she said. And that's like a five-year difference. So mm-hmm. it, it definitely can change your opinion based on social changes and as you grow older, for sure. So I would definitely agree. Yes, I see what you mean when you say it becomes like a horror film. The second half of the film, there's certainly elements of horror in it. And they even tip their hand a little bit a few times, like the dinner party scene when the camera moves in on Bogart and the light hits him in the eyes and he reveals this murderous impulse inside of him. Uh, That horror film technique right there. But the other thing I love about this movie, and I've, I've made this observation several times, including when I introduced it on TCM, and I'll have you know that I believe this is the movie I have introduced on TCM more than any other. I introduced it in the Summer of Darkness. I've introduced it on Noir Alley. I introduced it in a special one-off one time on a Noir night, Los Angeles Noir night on TCM. And I think there was even one other time, maybe with Robert, when I co-hosted a thing with Robert one time. I, I may have shown it as well. And I made this observation, and it's interesting that I have had people argue this with me. Believe it or not, I do get emails and things from people saying, I like what you say, but you don't know what you're talking about when you say this or that. You know? I, I believe it. I, I definitely live in this world and I fully believe people will argue you. Oh yeah, they, they have to be argumentative. But wh- the thing I really enjoy about this movie and the way it's structured is that Dix is the protagonist in the first half of the movie, but Laurel is the protagonist in the second half of the movie. And there is a specific scene where she is getting a massage where it switches 
where suddenly the point of view of the movie changes to her, the way she looks at Dix instead of the way Dix looks at her. And I just find that fascinating. And it's not something that was at all common in movies of that era, especially in, you know, movies, a lot of movies are structured where that's the whole point. We're going to change the perspective now. But this is basically a two-hander. I mean, it's a two-character story, really. And to switch from the point of view of the man to the point of view of the woman midway through the movie is really fascinating. And there are guys, of course, who argue this with me. Like, that's ridiculous. How can, what makes you think it becomes her movie? And it's like, are you watching the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the whole attitude towards dicks, that ambiguity, that like, you need to be afraid of this guy now. He has turned from the protagonist into the antagonist. Well, and not just that, but that's really, f- of course, people will argue about anything. I just made that point myself. But the idea of watching this and not just seeing the shift in terms of how he comes across, but it's also to me was, again, with how you change as a viewer, the first half of it, Laurel Gray is this quintessential. She's slinking. She has nothing but like amazing little quips. She has so many great one lines in this. All of her dialogue is just comebacks. Like it's even to the police detectives. It's just yeah. just these beautiful comeback. And so she's this kind of idealized version of femininity and she has a mysteriousness. She's like, oh, it's the woman who lives across the way. And it's she's an untouchable just, quality almost. Exactly. Thank you, Kristen. And when we get that switch, she's literally being touched. She's become this very like human moldable clay. She has this woman who is showing like the viewpoint that we get from her masseuse is, oh, you think of her differently than we do. So now I need to rethink of her. And then from that moment on, that's when she starts to be sort of increasingly submissive to him or just, oh, get, make me a sandwich, get me a drink. Like she's just like his muse and catering to his every, it's just such a rapid shift, but it's also one that is totally believable for both of their characters. There's not like, oh, it's, it's a, complete character shift it's the perspective of it and that's again that's nicholas ray there's a sure and deft handling behind the scenes to manage that kind of subtle trade-off well they were living it (laughs) oh that's such a good point that's such a good point to to talk about gloria graham and we've talked on the podcast gloria is kind of a problematic figure if you know the backstory but At the same time, you know, Nicholas Ray for being such a man's man and making some of the most kind of masculine movies, this is a film that really does touch on women in the beginnings of the era that would be for for better and worse, kind of presenting them as these domestic, untouchable figures. And when that transition happens, you can almost, and and I say this as having just watched this for the first time at eight o'clock this morning. And my mind was immediately like kind of turning with different ways to read it. But one of my favorite noirs, I call it a noir. I don't know if Eddie would, is uh, Leave Her to Heaven. Oh, yeah. And that movie, I, I argue, is all about this concept of women assertiveness and the, the struggles of women trying to assert their own identity while also being in a relationship. But at the same time with Gloria here, there is that fear of being tied down. I, her masseuse tells her he's not going to be as easy as to get rid of as the, the guy you were dating before. She's Mr. run Baker. from yeah. yeah, she's run from different relationships and there's this fear of what 
does that mean to me if I allow myself to become a wife? You know, I think the maid and other people say you can't be a muse and a nursemaid and all of this to him. And I think that that becomes very frightening. And there's also, I don't know if anybody else saw this. I'm the one who always talks on this podcast about homoeroticism. But that sequence where she's being given the massage by this woman, Miss Martha, who there's an allusion to history that these two have been together for a while. And just the way that Miss Martha talks to her, you know, angel, she ends her every sentence with angel. There's this personalization. There's this relationship element to it that I was doing some kind of like casual research before this. And there is a total like queer reading of this movie as Laurel's own fears about not just domesticity, but about being in a relationship with a man. I don't know if I necessarily believe that 100%, but it's really interesting to look at how that second half is all about female agency and what a relationship means to a woman, let alone maybe a queer woman, but just women in general. I, I don't think there's any way you can miss the subtext of the relationship between Laurel and Martha. Yeah, Ma- yeah Martha, I'm on the right track. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know about the rest of it, honestly, but that particular thing is spot on because there is absolutely no reason when you think about these things, like, did they mean this or didn't they mean this? I always say, well, look at it from the writer's point of view. You're writing a sentence like, it won't be so easy next time period, versus it won't be so easy next time, comma, angel. Those two sentences mean two entirely different things, right? By adding the angel, you're basically inviting the audience to interpret a relationship between these two women that you avoid having them think that by eliminating the word angel from the (laughs) sentence, right? So, I mean, it just sometimes people who don't see this stuff, it's like, really, are you wearing blinders? Are you you (laughs) listening with uh, headphones on or something? I don't don't know. But that's clear that Martha has feelings for Laurel and is super super protective of her. Now, whether she's in love with Laurel or she hates men and knows how awful men are and, and is trying to protect her, I mean, that's a, that's a valid question to ask. I love the character, character of Laurel Gray because to me, she represents, without it being overstated, you've seen a million movies about Hollywood and, and how women are chewed up in Hollywood. But this movie shows it in a, in a slightly different and somewhat more subtle way because Laurel never makes it in the business, right? She's not a star who, honey, I'll do this. But all of that stuff is suggested in the backstory, right? Mr. Baker's going to do something for her in that scene where Art Smith is looking for Yeah, She made a couple of little small things over at Republic or something. I find that a fascinating depiction of a woman who comes to Hollywood and tries to make it and her relationships with men have everything to do with whether or not she's going to make it in Hollywood or not. Right. And that's like a timeless story. And the fact that she actually does fall in love with Dix in a very real way that is not a calculating, I better go along with this guy because it's going to help my career. She actually falls in love with him and then learns that he is a person to be feared. And that's a very tragic story. And that's why I've said this before, I find this movie to be so incredibly sad. And then at the end, the the way the film ends, I cannot recall a movie more profound in its sadness than the fact that 
they're not going to, neither one of them are going to get what they wanted out of this. And they just walk away. And it is so not melodramatic. And as you guys know, I'm sure it was on the way to being very melodramatic. And Nick Ray just stopped the whole train and said, I can't shoot this ending. Because spoiler alert, uh, but it's not a spoiler alert because they didn't end the movie this way. Dix was going to kill her at the end of the film, right? Just in a fit of temper when he realizes that she's going to leave him, he strangles her. And then the police call to say, hey, good news. You know, we cleared you in this crime of killing the, the hat check girl. Somebody remind me, I'm, I'm embarrassed that I keep calling her the hat check girl because she's terrific. Mil- Mildred. Mildred. Mildred, Mildred. Mildred Atkinson. Yeah, Mildred she's Atkinson. played by Thank Martha you. Stewart, who's Martha still with Stewart, us. whom I actually had the, the pleasure of interviewing one time at a screening of this film. She was delightful. And, uh, oh, that must be a dream. She really stood out to me, this, this watch. I thought she, she gives was a really brilliant. She gives a fantastic performance. She's she a, commands the screen for sure. When a director lets an actress or an actor speak directly to the camera, that means they have the utmost confidence in what they are doing. And that scene where she is talking to Bogart and it, you're seeing it, You're seeing her through his eyes and she's telling him the story and the camera's following her around the room and she's talking, right? And then Alethea says this and then it's absolutely fantastic. She totally dominates and she has to make that strong an impression that fast because she's gone (laughs) in the very next scene, right? And it's just the memory of Mildred after And we kind of need to care that she's gone as well. Like, by that point, we've spent enough time with this woman that we get her whole thing. And I also like, there's so much subtleties of intent and power dynamics between the two of them in their exchange. Like, she's not naive. She immediately asks him and questions him when he asks her to come home and tell him the story and she's up front like okay i'm going out with someone else what is this about i don't want to go home with you oh you want me to tell you that you want me to use my mind you're interested in my opinion like a lot of things that one presumes a coat check girl isn't having valued a lot and so we get so much of her character just all in one bomb <laughs> yeah and then exactly. And then she's also throughout a great blend, like her, I'm only drinking ginger ale, and that she's this great blend of very kind of innocent, but knowing enough that she's not just kind of red riding hooded herself into mm-hmm. a space. Well, and she, all, lives in, she lives in Hollywood and she knows right. what's out there, you know, and she does give a tremendous performance and the character is very well, well wrought because she does You use the word innocent. I mean, that's the whole point of that character is she represents an innocence and the way Dix looks at her, he treats her like a rube, like she's just a rube, which is, the way Hollywood looks at the people who watch Hollywood product. Well, right? and that like her we're superior to these people. We know better. You know, she's just, oh my God, you know, like she, he can't take it anymore with how she bought into that trashy novel, you know? And uh, I love the, the way they convey that so quickly and efficiently in the film is, is great. There's such a great sideline of Hollywood being dismissive of its audience, of the people who enjoy, especially on a popular nature. Like they refer to this book being a wild success. And the director, you know, they just want to make an adaptation of this book that reflects the book because people like it. And yet many people, including 
dicks are so dismissive of, oh, it sounds terrible. He's listening to this woman pour her heart out with the enthusiasm that this story has brought in her. And the more she says and the more she cares, the more disdain he has, which is such a tight and neat way to um, (laughs) just to give it to Hollywood. I was just going to say that, um, of course, we developed such a quick attachment to Mildred. And I find it so uh, interesting because how the purpose that that serves to me once she is bumped off, it kind of puts in our head, wow, if he did kill her, that's a horrible thing to do because (laughs) she was so great. You know, because later on in the film, you see the UCLA football guy that he almost murders. And that is at least a little more understandable because, you know, he's at least calling him names and being not a nice person. And then Laurel, that's just a whole complicated mess in and of itself. But by the end of it, you at least see um, while he's not, of course, great for attempting to murder her you at least see the motivation there the twisted motivation but for mildred several characters i think even say why would he even do that even if he's this tormented soul right well Well, it's interesting that's a that's a thing that i don't know if any of you have read the novel but it's very interesting to just read it once just to, to experience it for what it is and then go back and read it again to try to understand why they made the decisions they did in adapting the book. And so if, if you're starting from the premise of this is a, that Dixon Steele is a character who in the book can just kill any woman, right? I mean, he doesn't have to have a reason. He, he's a stalker killer in the book, right? So it makes sense then that like that, that's a little carryover from the book, like the possibility that he could have killed this woman who did not in any way, I mean, nobody deserves it, right? But I mean, there's not even a connective tissue uh, to what he does between uh, predator and victim. There doesn't have to be any connection in the book. And so in the translation to the screen, I always felt like, I never suspected him of killing Mildred when I watched the movie. I never thought that. But then it became, but he doesn't have to have killed Mildred because this whole setup is revealing this part of his character. And I love those scenes where uh, Carl Benton Reed as a Lochner, you know, is saying, you're showing no remorse. You know, I I get you out of bed in the morning. I bring you down here. I tell you the girl you were with last night's been brutally murdered and you make a few cheap remarks and blah, blah, blah. And and his response is like, what are you booking me on? Like lack of sympathy or something, (laughs) which is like so classic that, yeah, he's, he's just this this writer who thinks he's above it all. You know, everybody's just a character in some story to him. Not necessarily the best person to get into a relationship with. When watching it, I I also noticed that, you know, it was impossible for me because I always look at time period and, and what was going on historically. It was hard for me to not see this in some instances as kind of a blacklist narrative. Almost the, I mean, because the bad guys, quote unquote, who at least are the overarching theme is the police. You know, they're the ones presenting this 
idea that he is the murderer. They keep harping on it. They invite him over to his friend's house as a means of trying to get a confession, which he, which the chief then uses in front of Laurel, be like, a, you know, he tells her, ask him what happened at the dinner and how he acted, and th- which only makes that ending more of a Greek tragedy mm-hmm. because it reveals this information that was en- unnecessary at the time. And I keep thinking of it almost like the blacklist, this element of they keep putting it out there about who's a communist, whether there's proof or not. And then at the end, it doesn't really matter. And I was just thinking like that could be all subtext that Ray didn't even think about. But it just seemed like coming out right at 1950, right at that time, that was something I couldn't I couldn't get away from. Hmm, interesting. I don't think of the cops in this movie as the bad guys at all. I think of them as uninteresting. <laughs> and, and, and that's their problem in terms of viewers, right? I mean, it goes back to what Brub says about Dix. You know, he's an exciting guy. He's so full of ideas. He thinks about things more deeply than other people and blah, blah, blah. And in comparison to the cops, yeah, you can see why he's excited. Because the cops look at everybody like fit this, you know, this person into the square peg and you've, you'll find the crook. You know, everything is by the book, right? And there's a line in this movie that is one of my favorite lines of all time in a film, and I use it all the time. It's when Dick says to the cops, well, it came down to a case of it was his story against mine, and of course, I told my story better. And that is how he looks at everything. And that's like his story is just better than anybody else's story because he believes he can tell that story better. You know, I mean, look at the way he seduces Laurel in this movie. You know, I mean, it's normal people are not capable of that. You know, he says, so it's been a couple of days. You know, what what's your answer? And when he comes on to her again, allusions to the horror movie aspect of the film, the way Ray shoots that scene, it's like he is totally dominating her. You know, there's a, she's looking up at him and there's this high angle when he looms over her to give her the kiss. And part of that seems very romantic and part of it seems, oh my God, he is swooping in for the kill here, you know? That's how uh, this whole movie feels to me. You explained it perfectly. It's because it, there are some very beautiful, touching, romantic scenes. I think the one that really gets me, and and you talk about how it's such a tragic ending and such a tragic relationship. But the part that really gets me is the scene where he proposes because it starts so loving and sweet and domestic and half of your brain is thinking this is precious I want them to be together forever and then the other half of course when when he actually proposes and and the mood totally shifts and you see kind of the gears turning in her brain and the music changes it's like wow she shouldn't be with him though she she needs to run the other way but five minutes before they were making coffee and it seemed sort of great. So there's yes. there's moments of both throughout their relationship and that's what makes it so interesting to me. And I will throw in as well, Humphrey Bogart's character, you know, Dix in the novel, the more you talk about it, it sounds like the sniper to me a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> and that would be really interesting on screen, I think. Yeah, there is a little bit of that. I, I definitely can feel that in the book. That scene you cite in the kitchen is one of my favorite scenes ever in any movie. 
because it's just so unique and it's so beautifully rendered. And the thing with the grapefruit knife where he tries to straighten the grapefruit knife is one of the best little bits of business ever because it conveys like how out of it he is and how she, because the reason I love Bogart's performance in this film is he, I don't think he has ever been this vulnerable in scenes. He doesn't show it throughout the movie. I mean, that's not the character. He's hiding how vulnerable he is and how wounded he is, which is part of what makes him go off. You know, it's his defense mechanism. And when he looks so sunken and crushed when he's proposing to her because he's admitting that he's better with her than without her, right? It's like he understands that what I've just accomplished, I finished the script, all of this stuff, and he knows that she's responsible for it and it actually hurts him in some ways to realize that. And that's a weird form of love. That's not a real healthy form of love. And so she gets it, you know, and, 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 and it is painful. And the other scene in this movie that I love is I absolutely am crazy about Art Smith in this movie, you know, who plays his agent, Mel Lazarus. And the scene where Bogart hits him in the restaurant, slaps him in the face, is so painful. And then when they're in the men's room together and he apologizes to him and he says, remind me to get you a new tie. You know, did I, did I break your glasses? And they shake hands. I'm not joking. I cry every time I see that scene. <laughs> and it's, it's weird. Like, why that? And it's like, but I get that relationship between the artist and the agent. And it's like, you could actually have punched me in the face or, you know, stabbed me with a knife from the table. And they probably still would have made up because they have this professional relationship that supersedes everything else, you know? And I don't know whether it's right or wrong or whatever, how to interpret it, but that was something. The fact that they included that and that Bogart and Art Smith play that scene so incredibly well. Art Smith is like the hidden MVP in this movie. His performance is is so great. He's like the Greek chorus kind of who comes in to comment on what's happening with uh, with Dix and Laurel, and he's he's just great in the film. And there, there also- you there you go, uh, Kristen. You know he was the blacklist victim <laughs> of all the people in this movie and the cast and everything. He Art Smith was the was the blacklist victim. I like the agent as well to me represented a through line of having an innocent fulcrum in this that, you know, we have Mildred at the beginning as a comparison, but the agent who's also, I mean, he's looking to make money, but not to the point that like he meets Laurel and wants to exploit her or anything. He's more encouraging of Dix as an artist than he does seem mercenary in it. And his innocence comes through to me in the belief of Dix's character in spite of Dix's actions. And I think that All of that ties into the, which is probably part of the overall complexities, but the idea of what is admired in terms of masculinity and male presence. And when we meet Dix, like one of the first things, literally one of the first things we see, he's driving in his car, someone pulls up next to him and... He's like, he's like, all right, get out of the car. Let's go. And you're like, cool. Very cool. Normal reaction to this situation. (laughs) And yet, so we see that we kind of judge it a little, but we also, because like I said, when we were trained at looking at characters, your first thought isn't, 
oh, this guy is unhinged and definitely the bad guy. Oh, he's like strong. Like this is our strong male lead and he'll fight. He'll stand up for himself. And then he picks a fight in a bar. Like he's someone who keeps putting, giving us all of these clues as people of what his character is. If, If it's damaged because of the war, if it's damaged from whatever, but he is someone who has all of these ugly tendencies and yet he's our hero. And so what will reconcile and then how we see Laurel, it's another thing that comes into play when there is that shift. And the, the proposal scene that we were referencing earlier is a great example of it, that when we shift to her eyes, how we see his character and this masculinity, it's no longer just the, the sweeping, oh, it's this romantic gesture. It's, oh, he's much bigger than me and oh he's going to intimidate me into this moment and there's so much depth to all of those exchanges yes you also have to it's interesting to remember of course when this film was released in 1950 like that opening scene where the guy the husband of june vincent that's june vincent in a little i mean she was a star and she played that little bit part at the very beginning of the film the audience is looking at humphrey bogart I mean, that's the Humphrey Bogart that they have come to know on screen. That's hum- that's Sam Spade. That's Philip Marlowe. That's the you know that's Tokyo Joe. That's all that stuff. And then uh, the film kind of deconstructs that persona as it goes along to say, well, the guy isn't so heroic because he he'll pick on anybody. You know, a- anybody that he thinks he can intimidate and cow, you know, he'll do it. You know, I, I want to share something uh, that's kind of interesting about this. Bogart was eager to make this film. I mean, he bought the rights to the book. The book had won the Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America as best novel of the year. And Bogart bought it. At that point, Dorothy Hughes had a pretty good track record in Hollywood. She, the Fallen Sparrow, made at RKO with John Garfield and Maureen O'Hara, was a Dorothy Hughes novel. Uh, Ride the Pink Horse that Bob Montgomery had made at, at Universal was a Dorothy Hughes novel. And so Bogart was like, well, you know, hey, I'll buy this one. And he had made Knock on Any Door with Nick Ray, and they got along really, really well. I mean, they, they were a thing together. And Bogart did not like this film. I was very surprised to later learn that he did not like making the film. He did not like, he thought it was not a good film. He went to a screening of the film in uh, some focus group thing. He had to be forced to go to the screening. He kind of was wondering if it was ever even going to be released. I, I would so love to know what that was all about. I know it was a difficult shoot because of what was going on with Nick Ray and Gloria Graham at the time. And I've also heard that that Gloria Graham, in addition to the relationship she was having with Nick Ray's son while making this film, she was also engaged in a little dalliance with Rod Amato, who was the dialogue director and sometimes assistant director of this film. And that there was a really, really tense relationship between Nick Ray and Rod Amato. And Rod Amato is a pretty interesting Hollywood character. He was he had been married to Colleen Gray and he went on to direct all kinds of television in the in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but everybody in Hollywood kind of knew Rodney Amato at this time. And he was on the list of Gloria's guys, <laughs> which was a pretty long list, you know. And 
And he, so there was all this tension on the set because, you know, Nick Ray knew that his wife was sleeping with this guy on the, on his crew. So Bogart just saw all of this and was like, can we just get this over with? I mean, he, he really didn't enjoy making this movie and kind of wanted the whole experience to just go away. But to Nick Ray's credit, I think he elicited one of the great Bogart performances in this film. Earlier, everybody asked me, because I'm a huge, huge Bogart fan. I've almost completed his filmography. Everybody asked me why I value him so much more than the other tough guys like Cagney and all those. It's because of his vulnerability. And I think he is incredibly underrated as a romantic lead. And I think he really shows that well, in this He did make film. that one picture called Casablanca. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I, I was just discussing Casablanca for, for another podcast, and, and I was saying the same thing. Like, he, to me, is like the epitome of a tough guy with a heart of gold, because as soon as a dame enters the picture, he is always willing to do the right thing for her. Well, maybe not in this film, but, I mean, he does ultimately walk out, so... He doesn't end up fully abusing her at the end, but um... yeah, but but uh, no, but Samantha, I get exactly what you're saying, and that's why this film is so painful because it, right. it, it plays on that Bogart persona, and you keep waiting for him to do the Bogart thing that you've seen in Casablanca and all these other films where he is the romantic lead, and he doesn't do it. You know, he remains a selfish shit to the end of the movie, you know, and, <laughs> and I, that's really painful. But I think that's what's so fascinating as well, because at the end of the day, I still think somebody like Cagney wouldn't have poured his heart out as much in this role. And I think the fact that the bogey really lets his emotions show, whether it be good or bad, whether the relationship end well or end disastrously, I think he was incredibly underrated for that vulnerability. And I think that it shows off really well in this film. And, and it's like, of course, you have the, the personal issues that he had while making it, but it is sad to hear that he didn't care for the film because he really shows the entire scope of emotion. I agree. And, and I don't think you should ever consider what an actor or a director says about their own work. I, I think you because they cannot separate the making of the film and the personal stuff that goes into it. They have a very difficult time separating that from the finished product. So the fact that Bogart didn't like the film, I would guarantee you that if Bogart lived into the 70s, he would be citing this as one of his best movies. Because I, I just think enough time would have passed that he could see it for what it is. At that point, you know, his only documented comments about the film are secondhand information from people who worked on the movie, like Rod Amato, that was all based on what he was feeling right at the time. He never talked about it later on. He never got the chance to revisit it decades later to see how great and ahead of its time the movie was. The wounds like, are still fresh. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to talk about the ending uh, before we close it out, because I feel like it's got such a brilliant ending that does not culminate in murder, ironically, for a noir. But at the same time, I don't know about you guys, I thought that it was going to end with Gloria Graham's body uh, and him being proven to be really a murderous person. But I think that that 
sadness of her answering the phone saying that information would have been great to have gotten yesterday. You know, looking at what Eddie was saying about it kind of in the Me Too era, people forget that, what is it, hate and love are the two strongest emotions and they're usually born of each other. And watching this movie now and having that moment of these two broken people walking away from each other to never be merely because of that Grecian, you know, this infer they, they probably should have gotten that phone call had somebody answered the phone maybe an hour before things would have been different. But that's the nature of noir. It's fortune's wheel turning and pushing people away from each other. Um, I was happy that Gloria Graham didn't get a face full of hot coffee, though. That was nice. Um, what do we all think of the, the final scenes of this movie? Well, I, I absolutely love it. I think, to me, the ending of this movie is what elevates it into some stratosphere of Hollywood at this time. The fact that they turned away from melodrama, that they didn't have to make it a genre picture, which is simply what would have happened if he'd killed her at the end. It would have fit all the tropes. And if that had happened people would describe this movie as sort of in the tradition of the postman always rings twice, because if you know that the plot of that, although that's a murder thing, the, the, the irony of that story is that they end up paying the price for the crime they didn't commit. And in this one, it's like he's pursued for this murder and he didn't do it. But the twist is at the end, he does, it all leads to him committing a murder that he's then caught for. And instead of that, it just is this sad thing where they pull back. And, and it's funny, I've, I've really analyzed this a lot, like watching the film and reading production notes and everything to try to understand exactly how this went down. You know, because they were on the set and you can see that they shot it the way the script originally was. You can see that he strangles her in the bed. There are still photographs that exist. There's a famous one now of Bogart with his tie undone sitting on the edge of the bed and you can see Laurel's body next to him. And it's clearly the shot where he realizes, what have I done? You know, I actually killed her. But that shot is not in the movie, right? And I actually have uh, photographs of the intended ending of the film, which was shot, right? Where Bogart leaves the bedroom, he goes to his desk and he types the ending of the script, right? I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. But it's different because it's like his confession this time that he's killed her. And then the police come in, Brub and, and the other guy, I forget the actor's name, who's the, the guy who follows him through the movie. They come in and basically realize they're coming to tell him that he's been cleared of the crime. And then they see this broken man sitting there with this confession that he's written in the typewriter. And that was the original end of the movie. But I'm just really glad that Nick Ray changed it. I, I just think it... it is a much more, you can't dismiss the points the movie raises with this ending because it just leaves it right there. There's no resolution. If he kills her, then, then everybody who watches this movie and every guy who maybe could benefit from recognizing themselves in this character, they get to deny it. Because it's like, well, you know, I, I'm not a murderer. I don't kill people. And it's like, well, now how do you feel? Now how do you feel when you drove away the best bet you had for love in your life? You made her leave. 
That's the point of the movie. Not that you killed her, you made her leave. So that's a very ahead of its time approach to ending the film, I think. You made her leave and also she was right in leaving. And I love the idea of an audience member who could identify with him looking because there is an absolution that comes when you just have someone who's the bad guy or evil or whatever. Whereas in reality, it's so much more um, nuanced than that, that good people can have darkness within them and having a character that embodies that and ends with not just the audience knowing that, but his own self-awareness, that he's walking away knowing that his actions led to this moment, even if those actions aren't as dramatic as having killed someone, but that he, maybe the pondering of the abusive quality of their relationship, how he's domineering, how he stopped allowing her to make choices for herself or have a voice for herself. And the idea of this character leaving and ruminating on that versus someone just in handcuffs because black and white exist and he's the bad guy and he did it, it echoes. And Mm -hmm. that it's this, that they manage, I love that you say, because it's not melodramatic at all. And yet we end with this woman like, leaning out her window whispering these lines of poetry Mm -hmm. and that it doesn't seem melodramatic but it's just so poignant and such a huge emotional moment but not i but in a fully grounded way it's just it's that's that's a really good point i mean it's very cinematic and yeah it feels a little bit stagey but it feels perfectly right and that's why we love movies right I love that both of you made the point that him not killing her makes what he did do seem worse. Because if if he did kill her, then you have the progression of things. And yeah, like somebody watching this film could dismiss it and say, oh, well, I wouldn't do that. And it makes it so realistic. And I think that's why this film and this ending is so brave for the time. Because it's like such an interesting juxtaposition compared to like the 50s housewife Lucille Ball situation. You know, it basically teaches audiences and even women at the time. It's such a great film for women to watch because it teaches them there are men out there that you should not be subservient to. You know, you need to look for these signs and not lead yourself into that kind of a life with a man when everything else at the time in Americana was saying, you need to cook and clean for your husband. (laughs) So I think that that's really great for that reason. Well, That's going to close out our talk on In a Lonely Place. Listeners, send us your thoughts on In a Lonely Place, Humphrey Bogart, Gloria Graham. You can email them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. We'd like to thank Eddie Muller once again for joining us on this episode. Eddie, where can fans find to get in touch with you, find your work? Well, of course, there's a Watch Noir Alley on TCM. I guess you can ask questions through the Noir Alley uh, Facebook page or the Twitter feed. You can also find me at the Film Noir Foundation, filmnoirfoundation.org. If you can send just mail to the mailbox at filmnoirfoundation.org. And, you know, I have my own Twitter feed and Facebook page where you can all drop in. So uh, there are many ways to find me. And if you want to follow me, you can do that on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Drea Clark, where can fans find you and listen to all your other stuff? I am at the Drea Clark on Twitter, and my contemporary film podcast is called Who Shot Ya? And Samantha Ellis, what about you? 
Well, you can find my work at musingsofaclassicfilmaddict.com. You can find my Cooking with the Stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at classicfilmgeek. And of course, the podcast is on Twitter as well at ticklish underscore biz. If you want to do more and get us to 200 episodes, I don't even know what that would look like. You can give us your support via Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We have so many amazing things to give away, including pins. I just sent everybody's not happening at TCM Film Festival buttons uh, to everybody. We also have discs going out regularly to patrons, so you get some awesome movies as well. We also opened up our new tier, The Tailor, that allows you to guest on an episode in the future. And of course, you get access to these episodes 48 hours early. You get access to extra interviews and my two bonus shows that are up there as well. That's patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. So next time our road to 100 continues, we go from sunny Los Angeles all the way to the bright lights of Las Vegas as another special guest joins us to talk about our second Elvis movie. We are talking about Viva Las Vegas. That'll be next time. Bye.